It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. No matter how they express it at the ballot box, it's clear that millions of Americans do not feel seen, heard, or represented in our political system. Finger pointing is rampant, but a few people inside the Democratic Party are speaking up to take some responsibility and figure out where to go next. Our democracy can't handle another 50 years like the last 50 years. You can't have an economy that benefits only the top 10% and nobody else and expect us to be around 50 years from now. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett hears stories all across the state from people who work two or three jobs to make ends meet and still struggle to give their kids a better life. In part, he blames neoliberal economic policy for normalizing inequality and allowing wages and working class growth to stagnate. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Harvard political philosophy professor Michael Sandel lays out a similar argument to Senator Bennett's in his recent book, The Tyranny of Merit. He writes that the Democrats' so-called rhetoric of rising over the last several decades has sent a message that the burden of success is on individuals, and as a result of that attitude, elitism and divisiveness have flourished. Bennett and Sandel meet on stage in Aspen to hash out recent history and imagine a new direction, philosophical, social, economic, and strategic, for the Democratic Party and the American people. Here's Bennett. This is what my copy of Michael Sandel's book looks like. Every single page is underlined here and there because it was so resonant with me. I think in part because of what I've been hearing in my town halls, I think in part because I had been a, the superintendent of the Denver Public Schools before I was in this job. I think in part because I'd been in private equity before that and had some sense about what the tyranny of merit might actually look like. Um, and what I heard, most importantly, over the last 14 years in my town hall, in a state which has one of the most dynamic economies of any state in the country, is that people are killing themselves. That's the word they use. They are killing themselves. And no matter what they do, they can't afford some combination of housing, health care, higher education, or early childhood education. They can't save. There's a woman who's the teacher of the year in Colorado, is in Glenwood Springs, which you know is just down the uh, Roaring Fork Valley from here, who said to me just in passing, she'd come to Washington to celebrate the fact that she was the teacher of the year. She said just in passing, 70 to 80% of the people that I work with have to work two or three jobs just to live in Glenwood Springs. You know? And I thought to myself, what are we doing living in a society where teachers, that's the hardest job anybody can have, have to work two or three jobs? So Michael's critique in this book of a Democratic Party that was not addressing the rungs of, the, the way the rungs of economic inequality were getting farther and farther apart from each other, but instead was saying things like, maybe you should go to college, maybe it's your problem, maybe it's not the economy's problem, was a cr critique that really resonated with me because I didn't think that I was providing the people in my town halls with a compelling enough view of where we need to head. And I think maybe what would be a useful thing for you to talk a little bit about is your um, indictment, for lack of a better word, of the technocratic politics that the Democratic Party has pursued and also um, you know, neoliberalism more broadly, uh, which has gotten a lot of attention under tents like this in Aspen over the years, and turns out, I think, to have been not the place we all needed to be. 
Well, the, uh, the rhetoric of rising is essentially what the Democratic Party for four decades, both parties really, the rhetoric of rising has been the response to the deepening inequalities that have resulted from globalization. And what the rhetoric of rising consists in is a series of slogans, but also a political project that says the way to contend with four decades of growing inequality, stagnant wages, the outsourcing of jobs, the way to deal with that is not to reconsider the version of finance-driven or neoliberal globalization that we, both parties, have pursued really since the Reagan era. Instead, the solution is for working people who are struggling with this wage stagnation to improve themselves, improve yourselves. And the way to do it is to go get a university degree. If you want to compete and win in the global economy, go to college. What you earn will depend on what you learn. You can make it if you try. These are slogans that are so familiar we scarcely think about them. But they constitute, if we step back and look at the anger and resentment that has been building for some time without our noticing it, it has to do with the inadequacy of this response to inequality and wage stagnation. It's not the economy we created that's the problem, it's that you haven't improved yourself by getting a college degree. What this misses is the simple fact, and those of us who spend our time in the company of the credentialed easily forget this fact, most of our fellow citizens don't have a four-year college degree. Nearly two-thirds don't. So it's folly to create an economy that sets as a necessary condition for dignified work and a decent life a four-year degree that most people don't have. And then there's one other element to this, Michael, that strikes me, that adds insult to the injury of job loss and wage stagnation and inequality. If politicians tell people the solution to your problems is to improve yourself. You can make it if you try. That's inspiring in one way, but it's insulting in another. Because for those who don't have a college degree and who are struggling in this economy, the implication is your failure is your fault. I think that we, I mean, broadly speaking, the Democratic Party, governing elites, Democrats and Republicans of mainstream politics, since Reagan, but through Clinton and Obama, have, have intoned these slogans, these messages, this rhetoric of rising, and missed the insult implicit in them. And that insult and the grievances and the anger and the resentment gathered and in 2016 exploded when Donald Trump was able to exploit those grievances. And I think what you, Michael, what you say in such a wonderful turn of phrase in the book is that if you have, 
you point out that we don't have a meritocracy. I'm going to come back to that in a second because we don't have a meritocracy. Uh, and then he, the argument is you, that's the wrong thing to aspire for because in a meritocracy, the people at the top uh, come to the conclusion that they deserve to be there and they develop hubris. And the people at the bottom, as Michael was just saying, feel resentful because they're at the bottom in part because they feel like they deserve to be there. And that that creates too weak a solidarity for us to address the, 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 the real moral challenges that we face as a country. And he would say, he would further indict the technocratic politicians in politics by saying, and you, by telling people, if only you knew more of the facts, you'd agree with me on climate change or a host of other issues, you move past the moral disagreements that we're actually having in the society that we have to find a way to address. And we do have to find a way to address it. Again, this state is one of the most dynamic economies in, in America. But the effects of what Michael has written about in his book, I see it every day here. I see it every day in Colorado. The depth of our income inequality, the complete lack of economic mobility. And what he says in the book is, we don't have to accept this. We had politicians of both parties for years that have accepted that this is just the way the market works. There's a place to start telling this story, which is with Ronald Reagan, tax cuts for rich people, no antitrust enforcement, prioritizing shareholders over every other compelling interest that we might have in a capitalist economy. That's without even being a Bolshevik. That's in a capitalist economy. Uh, outsourcing stuff to China to make it as cheaply as possible as opposed to thinking about our own supply chains and, and our own capacity to, to protect our national defense. These are all things that were treated a lot of the times when I've heard conversations by elites like they were just the weather and you had to live in the weather. What Michael is pointing out is, no, those were deliberate choices that we've made. And I can tell you, when I you know, saw the Roe decision come down last week, this is what I thought about. I thought about the fact that Donald Trump got elected president for a variety of reasons, but a central reason was the sense of lack of opportunity that working people have in this country and the fact that they don't feel well represented by the Democratic Party, I think. And, um, and there was resentment about it that led to his election. And Michael says in his book, and I've thought about it this way myself, this gives us a chance to see what tyranny looks like. In fact, it's a warning of what it can look like. And, and what I said when I was running for president, and I've said over and over again in my state is, our democracy can't handle another 50 years like the last 50 years. You can't have an economy that benefits only the top 10% and nobody else and expect us to be around 50 years from now. But now we have evidence because on Friday, for the first time in American history, we have lost a fundamental constitutional human right in this country because Donald, we did not have the ability to beat Donald Trump, a climate denier, and, a, and, a, and at least as a president, a pro-life candidate, uh, when we should have beaten him. And the reason we couldn't, I think, is because of a lot of stuff Michael wrote there. That is a tragedy for our country. And when you see it, and I'm not assuming that anybody here is a Democrat, but when I look at that, what it causes me to ask is not just how did they win, it's a question of how did we lose and why did we lose. And I wonder if you've been thinking about any of that well, in the context of world. Yeah, I mean, this, this is very powerful what you say. It's, it's difficult 
at a time in the wake of the Supreme Court decision striking down Roe v. Wade, and at a time when we, some of us, are following these hearings about January 6th, yeah. it's hard to direct that the outrage that many of us feel to self-criticism or self-reflection about how the politics of the last four decades by mainstream Democrats and Republicans alike, although we didn't see it coming, our politics, the neoliberal version of global capitalism that we insisted on and the inequalities it created and the lack of social esteem for working people that followed. All of this paved the way for Trump with these consequences, which now cast a serious shadow over the future of democracy, never mind the Democratic Party. It's very difficult in moments, especially of intense outrage, to ask, maybe we had it wrong. Maybe we opened the door for this. And, but I think unless we manage to do that, unless the Democratic Party can muster at least a moment of self-reflection and self-criticism, we're not going to begin to address the sources of anger and grievance and resentment. One of the most potent sources, I think, of the populist backlash against elites was the sense among many working people that elites look down on them, that the work they do isn't valued, not only in terms of economic rewards, where alarmingly large portion of the students in my class when they graduate go into finance or into consulting. It isn't just that that's where the money is. It's also that's where the social esteem is. That's where the social recognition is. And imagine how that is experienced by people who live in hollowed out industrial communities who are struggling in the new economy, who are not only confronting the inequality itself and the wage stagnation and the job loss, but who also feel that the work they do isn't valued and that they aren't respected. Trump got this. He was a strange tribunal for populism, but the one genuine thing about him was his sense of grievance, because he also, in his way, always felt aggrieved, looked down upon by Manhattan banks, the, the academic, the media uh, uh, elites. He was looked down upon. And he managed to connect. He did, he did nothing for the working class supporters who flocked to him as president. But he articulated the grievance. And the Democratic Party, I think, but you'll tell me whether you agree or not, Michael. I think the Democratic Party still doesn't get that. And what would it take to 
kind of redirect a small measure of the outrage to a certain self-reflection. Well, I think, I think, first of all, it's both parties. So I'll yes. come to that, and I know Absolutely. you agree with that. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I also think that you, you, you write in the book somewhere, there's a wonderful paragraph about um, maybe it seems a little bit uh, silly to be focusing on these mistakes by these ruling elites, except that it's the politics of these ruling elites that have brought us to this place yeah. where we are today. And I, I think I've seen it everywhere. I mean, I, at the end of the year, I went to uh, Europe and to the Middle East, and there was deep concern among people I was meeting with about the rise of uh, extremist political parties, the rise in many countries of anti-Semitism, the kind of nationalism that you're talking about in this book, uh, and the ways in which social media as a medium are tearing people apart as well, which is all, this is all begs the question about whether this would happen in another age or not happen in another age. But I, but I, um, and I, and I would say also that it's not just people in a hollowed out community. I mean, there are people in Denver, Colorado, the families that I used to work for when I was superintendent of the Denver Public Schools, whose kids were kids of color, whose kids were living in poverty, and whose parents were working two and three jobs, and no matter what they did, they couldn't get their kids out of poverty. And we, my, you know, my view, and it's different than it was, I think, when I first got back there, is we have to begin, both parties together, we have to begin to reimagine an economy that looks really different. We have to reimagine you know, a, a great nation again is what we need in this country. You know, we've got to figure out how to have a school system that reliably educates students in this country instead of compounding the economic inequality that we have, which is what we have today. We have to figure out how to have a healthcare system in America that's not one more headwind where parents in Pueblo or, or seniors in Pueblo, Colorado are cutting their drugs in half we're not using one inhaler when they're supposed to use three because we're the only system in the industrialized world that says you can't get those inhalers. You know, we need to figure out how we create an economy that when it grows, it grows for everybody. We fix a broken immigration system. Deal with the, the epidemic of opioids and, and fentanyl and, and methamphetamines that's happening in the United States of America. And I think to do a lot of those things, we're gonna, as you recommend in the book, we're going to have to figure out how to reform the way our political system works so that it's actually responsive to what the American people need. I wonder if you could say a little bit, Michael, about how you think about how we fell into a world where the, the market economy, as defined a certain way, be, began to dictate how we should think about who was a productive citizen, who wasn't a productive citizen, and what the common good might look like on the back end of that. I think it goes back to Ronald Reagan, to the Reagan-Thatcher era. They made the explicit argument that government is the problem and markets are the solution. But what was fateful for the way this unfolded is that after Reagan and Thatcher passed from the political scene, and were succeeded by center-left politicians, Bill Clinton in the United States, Tony Blair in Britain, in Germany, Gerhard Schroeder. These center-left politicians accepted the basic premise of Reagan, the Reagan-Thatcher argument. They softened the harsh edges of the neoliberal 
market-driven version of capitalism. They moderated but consolidated the hold of the underlying assumption, namely that markets and market mechanisms are the primary instruments for defining and achieving the public good. They never challenged that deep premise of the Reagan-Thatcher years. And we still haven't had a public debate, really, until perhaps 2016 with Bernie in the Democratic primaries and Trump in the Republican primaries. We haven't had a debate about the proper role of reach of markets in a democratic society. So I think it goes back, Michael, to that experience, the, the debate that went, was stillborn from, from the start. And if we were having a moral, a moral debate yeah. about what markets would look like, not right. what Michael Sandel thinks they should look like, right. what I think they look like, yeah. if we're having a moral debate about what they would look like, what would that sound like? Well. Here's one place to start, and there may be many. Um, I would start by shifting the terms of public discourse from arguing about how to enable people to clamor up the ladder of a meritocratic ladder of success at a time when, as you mentioned, the rungs on the ladder are growing further and further apart, and focus instead on what it would take to renew the dignity of work. And the dignity of work, it's partly about economics, about ensuring that the work people do is properly paid, asking questions whether the school teachers you were referring to who have to work two and three jobs, is it right that they, that the contribution they make to the economy is so much less than the contribution of a hedge fund manager or a casino magnate that the casino magnate or hedge fund manager makes a thousand times more than the school teacher. Isn't that really saying, this gets to the values, the ethical argument, isn't that really saying that the value of the contribution of the hedge fund manager is a thousand times greater than the value of the contribution of the school teacher, or the nurse, or the doctor for that matter. Now, few people would say yes to that question. Yes, it is worth a thousand times more. But that's the verdict about value and contribution that the market delivers. So to get to, to your point, Michael, about what would an, a more ethically engaged kind of public discourse look like, it would reclaim from markets the question of social value, of whose contributions matter, and how should they, should they be rewarded, not only economically, but also in terms of social recognition and esteem. I think that it's a very, very important point. I mean, the, this, you make a distinction between you know, our role as consumers and our role as producers, yeah. you know, and it's sort of become uh, an article of faith, I think, for decades that we're just a country whose economy is driven by our consumption. Yeah. And yeah. 
going back for decades, you can find, you know, Bobby Kennedy used in the book, examples of politicians who say, that's not satisfying enough. You got to feel like you're making a productive contribution of some kind right. to the society and the democracy. I think there's something really there. In other words, whoever decided that we were going to prioritize, as I said earlier, people that want to make stuff as cheaply as possible over in China versus lots of other things, now's a moment when maybe we could reprioritize some things. I think there's an emerging consensus among political leadership in Washington that recognizes that virtually every single thing we told ourselves from the time that Beijing joined the WTO and from the time Beijing engaged on the global stage turns out not to be true. We said that they would democratize. We said they would follow, abide by the rule of law. We, there were some politicians who famously said over and over again that the internet would democratize China. The opposite is true. The opposite has happened. They've been able to consolidate their surveillance state in ways that George Orwell would never have imagined and expand it. And I think that means that we have the potential to pursue a set of economic challenges or an agenda that looks different from what President Obama pursued or President Clinton pursued or the Bushes pursued or Donald Trump pursued that recognizes the hollowing out in our own country for the reasons that you said. And on top of that, what I would say, in addition to bringing back productive work and making sure people actually have a sense that they're, they're contributing to the economy and able to, to raise a family without and feel like they can stay in the middle class, you know, it's people um, that are working really low paying service jobs, taking care of senior citizens, taking care of people who are, you know, who are disabled, uh, who are being paid an unbelievably low amount of money, even less than early childhood teachers, even less than school teachers, and who have no representation at all in the country because they're working in one household over here and there's another one working over there. That's caused me to think a lot about sort of how our labor, you know, how labor could be part of the discussion that we're having too. Well, could I pick up on Please. something you just said, Michael, about a, a producer ethic versus a consumer ethic. Most of our economic policy and most of our politics among Democrats and Republicans in recent decades has been based on a consumer ethic to the exclusion of a producer ethic. And it's interesting, if, if we look back at the history of populist and progressive movements over the course of American history, the ones that contributed most to democratic impulses and purposes drew on a producer ethic, because a producer ethic is closer to a civic ethic. If you believe that what matters most to people is not only their ability to have access to the consumer society, that's important, especially if we're talking about essential goods and basic necessities, but beyond that, one of the most fundamental human needs is the need to be needed by our fellow citizens, to be able to contribute to those needs and to win social recognition and honor and esteem for doing so. And that grows out of a producer ethic. It grows out of, this is where Robert F. Kennedy, I think, was maybe the last major voice in national politics 
who was onto this. He said, a solidarity, community, these are not built only by buying and consuming goods together. For solidarity and community, people need to believe and have reason to believe that the work they do, the production they're engaged in, contributes, contributes to their fellow citizens, to the economy, and to the common good. There's a pride that comes from that that can't be achieved by owning stuff or buying stuff. And here, here's where we, we've been speaking now in, in broad ethical terms. And I think, if I could just add, I think that the success of right-wing populism is usually a symptom of the failure of progressive politics. And I think that's true today. So let's talk about what people here are probably wondering, well, what would a, what would a, a progressive politics oriented to the common good look like? How would it differ from the kind we've become accustomed to? Let, I wonder if I could toss out a couple of concrete policy proposals that could raise this debate and see whether you think these could find a place on, on the political agenda or not. Take the dignity of work. Nobody's against it. Nobody argues against the dignity of work. But suppose we ask the question, why is it that we tax earnings from labor at a higher rate than we tax earnings from interest, dividends, and capital gains? You could argue about that from the standpoint of fairness. But what about arguing, having that argument from the standpoint of what it says about whether we really do respect the dignity of work? Or here's another, and you can respond to, to these and others. Or what about saying the payroll tax? That takes a, a big share of the earnings of low, especially low-earning workers. It's a tax on labor. Suppose we substituted for the, for the workers' share of the payroll tax. Suppose we were able to get rid of that and make up the revenue through a financial transactions tax. In the name of affirming the dignity of work and having a debate about whether speculative financial activity really does contribute all that much to the economy and the common good. Now, am I straying, Michael, too far from what could no. be presented in uh, no, American political debate? No, I think you, you could actually get elected someplace. I, think. <laughs> I mean, I would say, first of all, the person who is most um, uh, uh, uses the rhetoric of the dignity of work in the Democratic Party is Sherrod Brown, who is the only person I know. Now we've got Tim Ryan running, so I'll say it differently. Until this point, he's the only person I know who can get elected in a hard state like Colorado. And he does it because nobody feels like he's talking down to them. He does it because his focus is on, su on supporting people in the state doing what they need to do. He's constantly talking about what the state is doing, and he's constantly talking about the dignity of work. 
I think one of our challenges as a country, I'll come to the tax issue, one of our challenges as a country is we've given up investing in our own economy. You know, we stopped investing in our people. We stopped investing in our plant and equipment here. We don't make those investments anymore. We pay dividends to shareholders. We buy back stock. We financially engineer. But we don't do the stuff that actually creates environments, shop floors, where people working next to automated robots, it must be said these days, have the chance to have the dignity of work. That's something we could change. And I've been trying to work on what the professor's talking about in terms of tax policy for years. I ran that presidential election that he noticed that almost nobody else did on the idea that if we wanted to, we could cut childhood poverty in half in this country, almost in half. Sherrod Brown and I have two bills together. One is Bennett Brown and one is Brown Bennett. I prefer one to the other, but I like them both. I like them both. And, and, and Brown Bennett is an enhanced earned income tax credit so that workers can keep more of their work. The child tax credit, which is Bennett Brown, uh, uh, we actually put in place last year as part of the American Rescue Plan. And it cut childhood poverty in America almost in half last year. It reduced hunger in the United States by a quarter last, last year. I couldn't persuade my friend Joe Manchin that it wasn't welfare and that in other countries around the world that have that kind of progressive tax policy, they actually have higher workforce participation rates than we do here, not surprisingly, because people use the money to buy daycare so that they can work. That's what they use it for. They're not trying to live on the child tax credit. And that's how it worked here. And, and, and Michael, we are 38th out of 41 countries in the world in terms of childhood poverty. It's a, it's a disgrace. And the poorest people in America are poor. I've been on the floor of the Senate when the tax cuts for the wealthiest people were expiring when the tax cuts for the biggest corporations were expiring, and it was 2 o'clock in the morning on a New Year's Eve or a Christmas Eve, and we were voting to extend all those tax cuts, very often with my being a, one of the few Democrats voting against the extension of those tax cuts. So I feel your pain, to coin a phrase. And I do think that there w it would be very useful to Democrats if we were running in this election having reversed the Trump tax cuts for the wealthy, which we promised to do, but we haven't done, and extending the Bennett-Brown stuff forward and saying, and by the way, while we were doing all of this, we, um, we, uh, we passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill that many Republicans decided to vote against in places like Wisconsin. You know, I think that would be a very resonant thing to run on. And making the tax code much fairer for the American people. Everybody in my town halls knows it's completely rigged against them. Every place I go, I'm, I'm happy to go to the reddest parts of Colorado and tell them I am for reversing the Trump tax cuts for the rich because 52% of it went to the top 5%. I'm happy to do it in the reddest parts of the state and I don't get any complaint. You know, and I'm happy to go to those red parts and say, maybe we could imagine a world where kids in poverty weren't just stuck there forever because for some reason in the United States, we think they deserve to be there, which they don't. It's not their fault. So I think that is a place that, you know, when you think about the ridiculous disparate treatment of capital gains and 
dividends versus ordinary income, that's a very fruitful place. In terms of the payroll tax, just because I know you, are we? No, I want, just, no, In terms ahead. of payroll tax, what I would say is I, I haven't done the math of right. you know, how much the offset would be payroll versus other, but it has occurred to me many times that you know, it doesn't make sense to me that GM, which has many, many more employees than Amazon, although uh, many fewer employees than GM used to, has to, you know, we have massive payroll tax being paid out of there while Amazon's not paying anything. That feels to me like we're taxing work and not taxing something else, or we're taxing people that are actually employing Americans versus not. And that is something that I think we need to give consideration to. Another theme, and I want to get in a couple of questions at least, but another theme, in addition to the dignity of work, that might enable us to have a debate about what you were discussing earlier, Michael, about how we, everyone now realizes that uh, supply chain, just-in-time supply chains didn't serve us very well. Uh, the outsourcing of jobs to low-wage countries didn't serve us very well, nor did it suddenly bring countries of the world around to democratic systems, as we were told that perhaps it would. What about the theme of patriotic capitalism as a way of beginning to work out a more moderate uh, version of capitalism that takes seriously the importance of encouraging companies uh, to invest in the United States rather than insisting uh, and essentially enforcing the hypermobility of capital that ignores national borders. The concept of patriotic capitalism, is there something in and that? And I would say, I think there is something in that, and I'd say by moderate, what I think you mean is less brutal, yes. less brutal yeah. form yeah. of capitalism. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and that is what we're gonna have to deal with. This system of ours, for 50 years, has relentlessly spit up the benefit to the top 10, 5, 1, and 0.1%. Everybody here knows that, and it's hollowed out the experience of everybody else. So we have to change it. And I think, you know, you're, I think you might be onto something in the patriotic capitalism. In this sense, we have seen um, both the stuff about China that you have touched on and I have touched on, and at the same time, we've seen Putin, you know, make this terrible uh, uh, decision with respect to Ukraine, which, by the way, if we had more time, might be interesting to talk about what a failure in totalitarianism that invasion represents, the poor judgments that he made because of the form of his government versus the form of our democracy. I think it gives us an opportunity to say, how do we want to respond to these high energy prices and to these broken supply chains. In addition to the other stuff I was talking about earlier, you know, we have some abundant assets in the United States that other countries don't have. We have abundant energy here. We have abundant food here that's pretty cheap compared to a lot of places around the world. We have the rule of law compared to lots of other countries. We have a democracy. We have uh, in an innovative private sector that's the envy of the world. We have all of this. We have a system of higher education that if it, if it, it just were actually democratized a little bit would also be uh, a great contributor, I think. So I do think there's the opportunity to say, not to say we're disengaging from the world, not to say we're going you know, to war with China, either in reality or, or in an economic sense, but that we are, we are taking on the responsibility to make sure that our economy becomes productive 
and that the people in the economy feel like they can make a productive contribution, and that when the economy grows, we don't just measure how our country's doing by the GDP growth. What we say is, when the economy grows, is everybody growing with the economy, which is the way it used to work. I know people, I know people who say it's impossible to do that in this global economy. It's impossible to do it with technology. And my answer to them is, the people in my town halls are saying to me, you better die trying before that's what you say. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we need to do. Uh, there were people I know who had questions. They uh, came to us coming in. Yes, go ahead. And we'll take two questions, and then we'll have some responses, given the time. So Bernie Sanders didn't just show up in the 2016 election. It followed a public debate about the role of neoliberalism and the dignity of work around social security privatization, which was, uh, you know, the preceded 2016. We yeah. had all these conversations about the, the private sector taking over uh, public, uh, the public benefit. Uh, and so I just want to make sure that we recognize that that was what that debate was all about. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, the Democratic Party had an internecine warfare, warfare with the centrists actually backlash against uh, the progressives and this. So when we went to the Obama era, uh, you know, uh, the grand bargain and what, uh, um, you know, Obama was trying to do to get uh, support from uh, Republicans, actually, you know, basically marginalized the, sac the, the, the work of progressives that sought to save Social Security. Mm -hmm. So with that, I want to say that we need to recognize that this debate has been ongoing and we have had it publicly. I want to ask you the question about inclusive growth. Uh, a lot of companies are actually now on this bandwagon. Is that not the same thing as patriotic, patriotic capitalism in your view? Okay, thanks. So we'll, we'll come to, the, let's take one more and then we'll try to, to address them. Both, yes, toward the back. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm wondering if we can zoom out a bit. The topic or the title of the conversation is about the future of the Democratic Party. And I was curious if either of you could opine on the future strategy for our party. And from the outside looking in, I think, and I'm blue through and through, but we are very good at identifying the millions of problems, expressing outrage and emotion, but there's not a lot of action or execution, and I think that's where we failed, and our arguments are not very persuasive, and so would love to hear more about how we're gonna shift the party, and who is leading that strategy? Because again, as an outsider, it is very unclear who is helping define the strategy. All right. Thanks. We, uh, thank you for both of those questions. The arguments are not very persuasive. Who's trying to do better? Let's start with that one, Michael. Okay, so we'll start with the second one first, and then yeah, and then we'll the go other. back. I'm, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, 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 I think that um, you know there are two things we have to do. There's maybe three things we have to do. One is we got to get a set of issues that the American people care about and commit to those. You know, and when you have a process like Build Back Better, you know, for the reconciliation package. Uh, in Congress where nobody has any idea what's in the bill and uh, we don't make a commitment to doing some things well rather than trying to do everything, which by the way was the strategy. I think that's a failed strategy and, and it's been demonstrated to be a failed strategy. You got a big problem, so we got to set some priorities. And you know, those, I think my own, it won't surprise you to, to hear me say this, but I think lifting half the kids out of America out of poverty might be a good place to start. Like that would be, and reversing the Trump tax cuts for the rich and doing some stuff that's meaningful on climate change 
To me, that feels like a package that the American people could support and that would build credibility for the Democratic Party. We've got it. The only person in America who's got a plan on how to organize Democrats to actually win, in my view, is Stacey Abrams in Georgia. And to replicate, to replicate what she has done around the world, or I'm sorry, around the country, would not, actually the world would benefit from it, but around the country, that would not be a very expensive thing for us to do. It would take discipline, just like the first part of this, would take discipline, take us being strategic, that's important. In the wake of the row reversal, it is very important for us to start thinking about what the institution of the Democratic Party is supposed to look like. We don't have anything like the Federalist Society. We don't have anything like uh, you know, the, the organized billionaires who supported building this brick by brick by brick to get to this deeply unfair economy that we have and this moment in American society where we're losing our civil rights as a result of what they've done. And this is not beanbag, to use a trite phrase. We gotta do it. And it's not just about slogans. People say to me all the time, you don't have slogans. Give me some good slogans. Trump had the three best since the French Revolution. Lock her up, build a wall, and make America great again. I'll take the slogans. I suck at slogans. But it's not <laughs> slogans that are, that are killing us. And let me just finish with this thought, and I'll turn it over back to Michael. If you think that we have been as disciplined as Mitch McConnell has been, or as strategic as Mitch McConnell has been, I want to know what you're smoking. It's not something that we sell here in Colorado. <laughs> and we, at a bare minimum, that's what we should be asking ourselves. I would never want us to be as cynical as Mitch McConnell is. He's a deeply cynical human. But he is a very strategic person as well. And we need to be as strategic as he has been if we expect to succeed. Great. I want to honor also the first question about whether inclusive, cap whether inclusive capitalism is a version of patriotic capitalism. I think there are two values here that ideally should go together. Inclusive uh, capitalism is about fairness. Patriotic capitalism is about solidarity. And both require that we think about, beyond the economics of it, that we think about the underlying ethic, which has run through this dialogue, Michael, and find our way to the kind of political debate, it won't lead to agreement, but the kind of political debate where at least one of the subjects under discussion is what really do we owe one another as fellow citizens? that gestures toward an ethic of solidarity, toward a politics of the common good, that the Democratic Party would benefit from, but that I also think American democracy requires. I'm gonna, because this is my state, I'm gonna take the last yeah, please. few seconds. Because w w the, I don't want people in this, well, first of all, on the point about we don't agree with each other, we don't necessarily agree, that's a fundamentally important principle. That is a fundamentally important principle. The point, we are not a democracy and a republic with the idea that we're gonna agree with each other. The idea is the opposite of that, is we're gonna disagree with each other. And out of those disagreements, whether they're inside a party or whether they're between two parties, out of those disagreements, 
we're supposed to create more imaginative and more durable solution than any king or tyrant makes, decides on their own. That is how a democracy is supposed to work. That's the point of having a democracy as opposed to a totalitarian society. And that's why it's so important that we fix the institutions in Washington because they're broken. And they can't yield those kind of results. And the last point I want to make is this. Don't give up. And especially don't let young people in this country give up. We have massive challenges as a, as a nation. We have massive challenges that Michael writes about in his book. The headwinds are so much larger than anything that I could have imagined when I was graduating from college in 1987. But we have considerable assets as well. And, uh, and there are young people living in America right now who have never seen a democracy work. They've never seen capitalism work in a way that was fair. They, don't, they look at the government and they see us not, deal, not addressing problems that are incredible importance to them from guns to climate to anything else. And what I hope you will tell them is that the change really doesn't come from Washington, D.C. The change really does come from them. That's true. That's where it has to come from. And I, I have spent a lot of time over the last few months trying to get a place called Camp Amachi part, made part of the National Park Service. Camp Amachi was a Japanese-American internment camp in southeastern Colorado 80 years ago, just 80 years ago. We were locking people up in Camp Amachi that were American citizens. And while the people at Camp Amachi were locked up there, 900 of the, the 10,000 people fought in segregated uh, units in the US military. 31 people were killed fighting fascism in Europe while their parents were locked up there. There's an incredible, there's an incredible commencement address by a, a young woman in 1943 who's writing the address, she says, under the spotlight that is going around the camp that her family has been locked up in. And the title of her address is Our Hope for America. And what she's saying is, I know exactly what has been done to my family and to me. I know exactly what has been stripped from my family and from me. But what I believe is that the values that really will endure in America are the values that are going to get us out of this place and allow us to make a contribution to our society. And what I'm saying to you is, that is what is at stake here today as well. This is not an issue that's going to get fixed by the cable television host, and it's not an issue that's going to get fixed, none of it, by the politicians in Washington, D.C. It's something that we as citizens have to do, and I hope for that reason, above all else, that you'll take the time to read Michael Sandel's book. So, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you all for joining us. Michael Bennett has been a Democratic U.S. Senator from Colorado since 2009. He currently serves on the Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry, Finance, and Intelligence Committees. In 2019, he was a candidate for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. From 2005 to 2009, Bennett was Superintendent of Denver Public Schools. He led reform efforts that resulted in sustained academic improvement for students. Michael Sandel is the Ann T. and Robert M. Bass Professor of Government at Harvard University, where he's taught political philosophy since 1980. His latest book, The Tyranny of Merit, Can We Find the Common Good, was named a Best Book of the Year by multiple international publications. He's lectured around the world, and his BBC series, The Global Philosopher, explores ethical issues behind the headlines. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. 
I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.